meeting, uh, you know, with the Bangalore IMA, Indian Medical Association, just around a week or 10 days ago, we were celebrating the Doctor's Day, uh, Doctor's Day function uh, in Chancery Pavilion here in Richmond Road, uh, you know. And then uh, I met a professor of general surgery and he had just retired from one, uh, I think, government medical college and then uh, uh, taken over as, uh, I think, the third unit HOD of a private institute. I'll not name the private institution. And uh, he was just lamenting uh, about the general decline in the quality of the students who really come to these private medical colleges. And uh, because they are paid one crore for MBBS or they have paid five crores for MS orthopedic or general surgery or something like that. There's tremendous pressure on the teachers to pass them. Mm. And the students are least interested to learn because they've got so much of money. So how knowledge will enter? You know, they're least interested to learn. And they so why do you think they're the, entering? Sorry, why why do you think they're entering the system in the first place? They're not interested in studying. Uh, I think uh, they're interested in the certificate. They just want to get the MS certificate or the MBBS certificate. If they get okay. it, they it's can status. To, yeah, yeah, and status, and then. If their father has a medical college or some kind of a nursing home or a hospital, they can run it or, you know, be a manager there and that kind of a role they I can see. have. And mint more money. And if they invested five crores, they have to make 50 crores. That pressure is always there. So mm. that kind of, a, it's sort of become more of a business than academic, you know. Uh, traditionally, MBBS has been an academic kind of thing where you really slog, you learn, you become the best in your trade. And then you serve the uh, patients and, you know, you treat the patients and that's been the basis of it. Hi, today I'm talking to Dr. Shrikan KN on the Idea Sandbox podcast. Why am I talking to Dr. Shrikan? He is a distinguished orthopedic surgeon based out of Bangalore, India, who is a fellow of the Royal College of Surgeons England, FRCS as is popularly known as. He pioneered the joint veto technique, which is a regenerative arthritis treatment technique, as well as he pioneered the robotic computer-assisted knee and hip surgery techniques that led to maximum accuracy as well as better patients outcomes. India is home to the second largest knee pain sufferers in the world and I think it's important for me to chat with him and see what his ideas are on solving some of these problems. He is a very passionate individual. He has some great ideas in this space which is self-evident with the some of the initiatives he has taken. Um, he's performed thousands upon thousands of uh, knee and hip replacement surgeries um, that has gained him a lot of fame and reputation in this field. He isn't afraid to speak his mind and today we're going to talk about various topics related to healthcare challenges in India. We're going to talk about some of the medical, private medical school education and some of the challenges with that related to expenses, the cost and the number of medical students that are enrolled in schools and so on. And from that we go into medical equipment that's imported from abroad, some of the challenges with using those equipment um, in an Indian environment with the kind of biomechanics and ergonomics that affect Indian physicians, I should say, and surgeons. And then from that, we go on to talking about preventive healthcare. You know, what, how much preventive healthcare is there? It's an emerging field in India, uh, preventive versus curative healthcare and so on. Uh, please enjoy this podcast uh, as much as I did having the conversation with Dr. Srikant. Um, thank you very much. Yeah, so uh, Dr. Srikant, like we were talking last time, um, you know, uh, there's some there's some issues in in all aspects of of, of the 
you know, medical healthcare space in India, and we touched upon it last time. And I, I guess this time I want to pick one particular topic, which is that of this um, the number of medical seats in the country. You know, so I was just picking a, I was trying to do my background research, and so one of the things that popped out at me was that. You know, the number of applicants per year that are trying to get into med school is about 21 lakhs. Um, and the number of seats available is little around, little above uh, 100,000, which is little more than one lakh. Um, there's also a video I think I'll link to you, and I'll, I'll probably splice that video in. There was this, um, I guess, a student who was trying to get into med schools. He was talking about this kind of racket that's been running where many politicians uh, actually run these colleges they own these medical i mean medical um, colleges and then they try to recoup it because you know with high fees and donations and whatnot i guess i was wondering if you have anything to say about that in in that space and and maybe kind of expand on that because you you've obviously come out of the indian medical system i mean medical education system you did your mbbs in bangalore as i understand right um I guess uh, I'll let you talk about that. I mean, same. The whole idea of uh, this past podcast for me is, uh, you know, how to improve the system, you know, because, uh, you know, India has got a target of uh, becoming a developed world in 2047. You know, uh, personally for me, it's too far because uh, I don't know if I'll be alive in 2047. So, you know, for me, it has to happen in front of my eyes, you know, and now and then, then only, uh, you know, it's a reality. So, you know, my vision for my own country is that, uh, you know, whatever development has happened now, not in, uh, you know, thousand years from now, which will be pointless, really. Uh, that's the idea behind this podcast and how we can improve the system. And uh, uh, yeah, I think uh, <clears throat> medicine has always been competitive. You know, even I remember my MBBS time, uh, you know, uh, uh, I had to score, uh, I think, the 57th or 58th rank for the state of Karnataka, Karnataka to get into the premier institute by Bangalore Medical College and Research Institute, which is the number one college for the whole state of Karnataka. So the competition has always been uh, high and you have to burn the midnight oil. And the statistics you gave 21 lakhs uh, waiting uh, or applying and one lakh getting through, <clears throat> I mean, so I'm not surprised with that. That's, uh, that's quite true. And what you summarized, uh, you know, uh, what some medical student uh, told you about, you know, how uh, the whole thing is happening is also true, actually. Um, so I think, you know, uh, yes, there are two aspects. One is the government medical college. Second is the private medical college. And uh, I remember my student days where we always used to have a strike uh, to prevent more private medical colleges from coming because we wanted government medical college or premier institute, a lot of patients, proper training. The doctors coming out of the government medical college are really grounded doctors who are well trained and safe on the Indian patients. And that's what is a standard of care, which uh, the, I think the Indian patients deserve. So, uh, uh, you know, uh, nobody wanted mushrooming of the private medical college, even at that time, 20, 25 years back. And, uh, you know, it's the same ethos is there. But I think uh, it's a little bit more commercialized now in 2023 or, you know, uh, uh, in the last uh, 5 to 10, 15 years in India. And as you uh, correctly said, all the private medical institutions are owned by uh, very rich people, uh, you know, uh, usually with some kind of a political connection. And uh, it's a it's a big business. And, you know, uh, uh, because there is a investment in a sense, investment on the land and investment on the infrastructure and things like that may not be equipment and things like that. But at least the land and the building and everything, it costs a bomb. And, uh, you know, uh, since they own uh, these kinds of uh, institutions, now, obviously, they want a return on investment on that. So the return on investment comes 
by, for example, in a private institute, I think the going rate, if I'm correct, uh, from my research is that to uh, do MBBS in a private medical college, it costs you a crore rupees, you know, so that is the going rate. And to do a post-graduation, MS or MD uh, in India now in a private institution cost between uh, five to six crores. And the top ones are the radiology, which costs anything above six crores, I think. And then you've got the orthopedics, which can cost you five crores. Medicine can cost you again four crores. So this is the uh, this is the. These are at the private institutions, right? Sorry to interrupt you, but these are you're you're describing the figures from private institutions, not the government colleges. Yeah, 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 yeah. These are the figures from the private institutions. So government institution still, you know, it's a merit based. You have to do a all India exam called the NEET, and you have to good uh, secure good ranking. And usually, uh, you know, the appointment is through that. And then uh, I think the fees are reasonably capped. I think it's a little bit increased now, but you know, it's reasonably capped. It's not like uh, crazy, like oh, you know, one crore and four and five crore. That's like that's completely unaffordable by a meritorious student, really. Only some money backs or their children can buy such kind of tickets. And very interestingly, I was in a meeting, uh, you know, the Bangalore IMA, Indian Medical Association, just around a week or 10 days ago, we were celebrating the Doctor's Day, uh, Doctor's Day function. Uh, in Chancery Pavilion here in Richmond Road, uh, you know, next to Richmond Road. And then uh, I met a professor of general surgery and he had just retired from one, uh, I think, government medical college and then uh, uh, taken over as, uh, I think, the third unit HOD of a private institution. I'll not name the private institution. And uh, he was just lamenting uh, about the general decline in the quality of the students who really come to these private medical colleges. And uh, because they are paid one crore for MBBS or they have paid five crores for MS orthopedics or general surgery or something like that, there's tremendous pressure on the teachers to pass them. Mm. And the students are least interested to learn because they got so much of money. So how knowledge will enter? You know, they are least interested to learn. And they so why do you think the they're entering? Sorry, why why do you think they're entering the system in the first place? They're not interested in studying. Uh, I think uh, they're interested in the certificate. They just want to get the MS certificate. Or the MBBS certificate. If they get okay. it, they it's can status. To, yeah, yeah, and status. And then, if their father has a medical college or some kind of a nursing home or a hospital, they can run it or you know be a manager there and that kind of a role. They I can see. Have. And mint more money. And if they invested five crores, they have to make fifty crores. That pressure is always there. So mm. that kind of a, it's sort of become more of a business than academic. You know, uh, traditionally MBBS has been an academic kind of thing where you really slog, you learn, you become the best in your trade. And then you serve the uh, patients and, you know, you treat the patients and that's been the basis of it. Now, so much of commercialization now that, you know, one crore somebody's invested, he wants to say, when can I make my 10 crores? So obviously he's forced into all kind of unethical practice at the end of his MBBS or at the end of MS, you know, uh, because he has to recoup his five crore investment that he has done. So I think this is a... Uh, present state really and i was quite shocked when the professor told me that uh, the management is really pushing them to pass these guys you know because uh once you pay five crores you know, your entry is guaranteed your exit is guaranteed it doesn't <laughs> matter what quality you got so the yeah. management wants to make sure that they get that uh, uh, the degree what they have uh, promised uh, near one with the five crores uh, donation so uh, you know that's that's not really good and I, I i don't think that's good for the indian patient really right yeah and, and I mean, th th these are just jaw-dropping. Is this, <clears throat> excuse me, um, is this been is this kind of phenomenon of this, you know, um, kind of a broken system, so to speak, been around for a long time? Was it in the recent times? I mean, how how bad has it been historically, and 
I guess, how have you seen things improve or change or degrade? Yeah, yeah. If I uh, if I look at my own, I mean, when we are doing MBBS, you know, I participated myself as a student to block private medical colleges from coming in Karnataka. So at least I have uh, participated in two or three strikes actually. I never okay. knew as a student why I was participating. So everybody was doing. I was also part of the strike. But uh, now I realize what I was doing. I think this anomaly has been there for long. You know, even at our times, uh, you know, the mushrooming of private medical colleges have been there. But I think in the last. Uh, 15, 18 years in India, it's become really bad and it's become like, you know, for all. And I think, you know, mm -hmm. everybody participates in this. It's not that, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, uh, yeah, somebody has, has money back. He wants to have a medical college. He knows five crores is a big amount of money he can make per student. And, uh, you know, that's that's a huge amount of money. So everybody turns a blind eye. OK, whenever there is mm -hmm. uh, fees keep on increasing. And these capitation fees keep on increasing. Nobody takes action, neither the police, nor the regulatory authorities, nor, nor even the courts. You know, they turn a blind eye. And you know, whenever there is medical negligence, then all the courts wake up and say, oh, these doctors, uh, they're doing this and that. And you know, uh, let's put 5 crore compensation, 10 crore. But you need to go back to the root cause of this. And the root cause of this is this: uh, what is happening, you know, because uh, money backs coming in you know, with a lot of uh, money, and uh, they just want a certificate, not training. So if you, unless you address it at the root cause, the malady cannot be really, uh, uh, you know, addressed really. So you're just saying, uh, turning blind away when, uh, you know, when the fees increase, court has to take a sum to cognizance and say, why is the fee so high? How are the general merit category students going to pay five crores? So what will be the outcome of, uh, you know, these people coming through five crores? Are they really learning anything? Are they safe on our patients? This is the role of the judiciary and the regulatory authorities, which, uh, you know, uh, sadly, is uh, you know not happening in the way it, it should really happen. Ideally, yeah. What do you think is the solution? I mean, if 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 private colleges are coming out because there's a shortage of government medical seats, is it that the government has we we as a country have to prioritize medical education and we have to invest more in that and 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 try to keep that kind of private education uh, sector at check? Or what do you think are the, is the solution? Because we, I mean, end of the day, we need more doctors in India. We Wait, I was looking at some numbers here. This is with neurology, for example, not not related with uh, the medical, uh, I guess, healthcare space in general. But the number of neurologists in our country is just a little, bo a little bit over two thousand neurologists in the entire country of India, right? Like one point four billion people, and the ratio is, you, it's it's astronomically skewed, right? And and so when I look at a number like that, I mean, we we need more people. We need more people who are skilled. Our outcomes need to be better and things like that. Because last time we spoke, you said the outcomes are also not as great. Um, what What do you think is the recipe to get out of this mess? Yeah, I think uh, yeah, investment uh, more in medical education and healthcare, and uh, probably investing more in the government medical colleges because already these infrastructures are there and they are catering to huge amount of patients who are coming as well. So it's a and it's free treatment for patients as well. So it's a win-win kind of model is already there. So I think the money has to be put in uh, a government sector and a check has to be made on the private sector because if the private structure, you know, uh, facilities had real intention that, oh, let's educate our people, let's get better doctors, then that's a completely different ball game. But here it's just a business thing. You have a kind of a shell and, you know, then you get the examiners once in a year in buses, you get the patients in buses. For when the MCA comes for inspection or NMC comes for inspection, you know, patients are bought and uh, examiners are bought. A whole kind of artificial hospital is created 
Then the inspector say, okay, everybody is there. This college gets a recognition, and that's fine. The next day, next year, they can charge more, uh, more crores, you know. And they, this kind of keep on happening. I, I think you know that is a downward spiral, really. So uh, downward spiral, you know, for the Indian patient. You know, forget about all the politicians who are making money out of this, and all the people who are part of the system. But uh, end of the day, who is going to suffer is the uh, uh, the Ahmadmi or the average right. Indian is. Yeah. yeah, I mean, you know, we spoke about a little bit of this last time. The, the If something like a change like this has to happen, me and you speaking on a podcast is one way of raising awareness to all of this stuff. But, you know, rubber meets the road. What is the real thing that can be done? Is it is it some political uh, candidate that stands on a platform that says, all right, I'm going to look at actual data and then design, do the whole system design such that we put out more um, doctors per year, the quality of education is high. Is that the solution? It, or is it the medical fraternity of doctors come together, you know, form this kind of advocacy, advocacy group and then, you know, advocate on the behalf of the whole country, so to speak, and say, look, we need we need a massive kind of intervention, right? This is an intervention we we're talking about. This is not, we're not talking kind of incremental adjustments along the way here. We need some big levers to be pulled, big changes to be made um, if we want to see health outcomes to 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 improve. Yeah, I think uh, there are two uh, solutions to this. One is, uh, you know, uh, 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 you know, bottom-up approach and the top-down approach. The top-down approach you mentioned, good leadership. Uh, a leader can come and say, uh, look, you know, we had to prioritize this. This is a rotten and we can't continue because tomorrow I'll be old. And, you know, one of these doctors from a private medical college who has paid five crores, who are not attending a single class can be treating me and treating my heart attack. Okay. And my life as a politician or Neta or a Babu or a judge is precious. You know, it is not to be frittered away. Right. Okay. So I, it's in my own selfish interest that I produce quality graduates, you know, not just medicine, but all the fields in India. That's the NETA top-down kind of approach. Uh, you know, the bottom-up uh, bottom up approach would be uh, the people, you know, the people of India, uh, you know. Uh, I think uh, they should make health and uh, medical education as an election issue, okay? So now we're still, you know, 70 years down the line, 75 years down the line, we're still fighting on Mandar Masjid, caste, sub-caste, language, creed, sub-creed, you know, this is how mm. elections are uh, fought even now in 2023. It's really shameful, you know, mm. world is gone, but we are still there in caste, sub-caste language system and fighting elections and fielding candidates like that. So we're still in a very archaic kind of uh, society, really. So we have to wake up and say, hey, hang on a minute, the real issue is health. Real issue is water. Real issue is uh, uh, unpolluted air. Real issue is good roads. You know, real issue is education, electricity. These are the real issues. So let us, you know, make the election issue about education and about uh, you know healthcare. You know, getting mm -hmm. a quality free healthcare. Let's make it as a campaign. So when that happens, the natives also feel, yeah, now the population is interested in the healthcare. They're interested in medical medical education. Let's invest there. You know, let's change the system. Let's uh, shut down the private medical colleges. Or if there are private medical colleges, let's uh, uh, like, uh, you know, what they say, nationalize it. You know, take over mm -hmm. all the private medical colleges. Make them into government. Already the, the land Hold them there. to a higher standard. Yeah, yeah, building is there. So all that you do, do is uh, whatever you do, recruitment in the government medical college, do the same thing in private medical college. Take over, as simple as that. So that could be a solution also. So I think, you know, both the public have to demand and the natives have to really think uh, laterally and into the future and uh, produce solutions really.
Um, shift, uh, changing topic, I guess, move on to the next one, rather. Um, you and me had an informal discussion when I was in India recently. We were talking about procuring biomedical equipment. You know, in your instance, it's a robotic surgery equipment, as I understand. Um, and you were making a point, or maybe lamenting, so to speak, that the equipment that's made abroad, like in the West, for example, is predominantly designed for that kind of a population. Um, so the so the uh, dimensions of a, of a of an equipment might be suited, well suited for a, a Western doctor. You know the physical dimensions and so forth. Um, we need something more that's more indigenous, like coming out of India, R and D to be uh, to be done in India and things along those lines. Um, I guess can you speak about that in general? Like what you you are a hospital owner, your orthopedic doctor as well, and you're working, you're dealing with this head on, like face to face rather. And what is your, like when you have to buy a new piece of equipment that comes out, let's say in America or, the, or Europe or something like that, um, what are the trade-offs you have to make? Like are there, uh, is America and, and Europe the predominant like, um, man, in, in, you know, manufacturers of these things or, um, you know there are other cheaper sources, but the quality is not as high. I, I mean, I guess I'm very uneducated. Could you maybe educate us about that? So I think uh, yeah, I, I think this is a real problem actually. Even uh, now in 2023, uh, I'm into robotics in the last two years uh, here in Bangalore, and uh, you know the issues uh, the top robotic surgeons in the country are facing is that uh, we have to import all this uh, uh, equipment either from US or from Europe or other developed countries. And, uh, you know, uh, naturally, you know, somebody in uh, uh, Europe or America, uh, he may be very tall, well-built, uh, uh, six-footer and things like that. So these robots are also designed, the handles, the robotic arms are designed for those kinds of dimensions, really. And if you go to different parts of the world, uh, you know, the human anatomy is completely different. Somebody might be very short or somebody might be very, very thin. So, you know, when that happens, the robot is too big, too large for that. So uh, then we, there is no uh, customization. You can't really cut the robotic arm into half to use it for a shorter patient, really. And I think that's the uh, real situation the top robotic surgeons in India are facing right now. Uh, because these are all designed for the Western uh, population. And when they bring it to India, they find that, oh, I wish this was like a one feet shorter. Uh, it would have been ideal. I could have operated mm. much better and smoother on our patients, you know, and that's the, that's the kind of a real issue. Uh, I think a more fundamental issue is uh, are we really in India investing uh, investing in R&D, research and development? That's the bigger bigger issue, really. And I, I don't think uh, anybody is really serious about that. Neither the government sector or the private sector is very serious about the R&D. And, uh, you know, uh, research is not really given that uh, amount of importance. Uh, we are basically like, uh, you know, even if you look at the software, we are more of a service sector. We are servicing whatever is happening in the West rather than innovating and producing new softwares and new ideas here in India. And mm -hmm. that's been the tradition. And our people are very happy, our managers, CEOs, CFOs. They're happy as long as the money is being made by replicating, by a kind of a service kind of industry. They're happy. They think, oh, we've done it. You know, we've produced these numbers. We had five crores. Next year, 10 crores. Next year, 20 crores. That's all they're bothered about. They're really not thinking about R&D and, uh, you know, innovating and producing new ideas, really. And uh, I think that's uh, that's where uh, things are uh, lacking. And uh, 
Uh, yeah, so uh, uh, again, bringing technology from the West to here, uh, you face a lot of you know red tape and things like that. For example, before the COVID, uh, there was a company uh, near my house in UK, in Gloucester, who are doing this vacuum cement mixing. It was a great idea. I had used that in UK. I thought it was an excellent idea. It improves the cement strength and everything. And that guy came to Bangalore and he wanted to sell and I, I tried to help him. And he bought a big consignment to Chennai. And then, uh, you know, he had to bribe uh, in the Chennai airport, uh, you know, in the internal customs department, uh, the double amount of the cost of the thing. And mm -hmm. he, he thought it's pointless. Why should I pay 100% of the value of the goods? So he just left it like that. And a few years later, I met him in UK. He said, Dr. Shikant, you know what? I, uh, I bought so much of items. It's still in the Chennai airport. And after three or four years, do you know what they did? They destroyed the whole thing. Because wow. So if this is the... Uh, how the whole process works, then uh, sadly we can't get all the the best other thing for our patients really. You know that that is the, those are the practical issues really. Yeah, I mean it sounds like it, it's almost like a holistic. We need like a holistic approach from from education. I mean we're talking about R and D for engineers to be able to go and do research, uh, research and and you know that education side of things, and then we need the whole supply chain of 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 like. The developing and manufacturing this uh, this equipment, and then you need people who in, you know integrate all of these into making it, making the machines, and then uh, collaborating with you guys. Uh, can you quickly describe to me? Can and I'll probably one point I was just reading today. Somebody sent me very interesting. Yeah. I think the U.S. surgeon, uh, the robot which is used for the general surgeons, you know, it's called as a Da Vinci, and mm -hmm. uh, at present uh, the going rate for Da Vinci is fifteen crores. This guy, this is a surgeon from U.S. Uh, Indian surgeon, you know, like me, I came from UK, this guy came from US. I think he moved to India around five years ago. And he said, you know, why should we spend 15 crores for Da Vinci? So why can't we do our own robot? And he, mm. you know, did all the kinds of jugad and everything. And he produced an Indian-made robot. I, I don't remember the name of the company that he has produced, mm. but it's five crores, you know, and I believe, you know, they've done some hundred surgeries in Delhi using this robot, which works similar to Da Vinci. So I think, you know, this is the kind of really uh, lateral thinking that we need. Where you know somebody could come and say, "Hang on, you know, why pay 15 crores for Da Vinci? Let's you know use the same technology, modify a little bit, and use for our patients at one third the cost." I think you know, hats off to that guy. Really, what what he did uh, came from US. Yeah. He could really walk the talk, and he could uh, really produce a, a a machine at one third the cost of uh, which the Da Vinci system is uh, in the US and other places, really. Yeah, um, I guess it, like rough numbers, what percentage of equipment do you think is imported versus what we manufacture locally in India? Like across the board, you talk about um, not just one specific area of, of healthcare, but just across the board. How much do you think like we import our medical equipment? I mean, so all the, I would say all of the high-end equipment is imported, almost all, maybe more than 90%. Okay. So because, you know, we don't produce this high-end uh, equipment which are uh, like state-of-the-art and which can really do the thing. So the easiest thing is to import them. So, you know, government also sort of encourages that kind of a thing. So okay. I think only the basic level things are uh, maybe 10% are really manufactured. Yes, there's a greater push towards uh, Atman Nirbhar Bharat, Make in yeah. India, that thing. But uh, it has to, uh, yeah, the idea is great, but it has to really start uh, with our education system 
uh, where you give quality education, bring the people, make them go through the grind. You know, it's about yeah. going through the grind for MBBS or MS. So when you go through the grind, you become a good doctor, you become a good human being, a good surgeon. Then, one, then you know, you can start into R&D, that kind of a thing. If those fundamentals are missed, you know, you just give them certificate, oh, one crore, take this certificate, or two, five crores, take MS orthopedics, you can go operate on anybody. Then, sorry, you know, you don't have any of the basics yeah. fundamentals. And just with the certificate, you know, they, they say, you know, the classic thing is that you can buy merit certificate, but sadly you can't buy merit itself. You know, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you had to burn the midnight oil for that. Yeah. Yeah. I was, I was thinking the previous discussion we were having about, you know, medical school being medic med school being expensive. Um, I guess, what are your thoughts? I mean, this is coming from a person who has no idea in the medical space. Like, so a lot of engineering, uh, like education, for example, you know, software programming uh, and, and things along those lines, a lot of it is becoming democratized online. So you can just go take courses. It could, stuff that you had to pay three to four thousand US dollars at one point to get one course here in the local university now has become literally under a hundred dollars, right? Is there, I mean, uh, is there parts of the medical um, education that can be moved online or is it? most of it is just hands-on that's the only way to do it is in, in an actual like you know university setting where you actually sit with your um you know you actually have to practice being uh, you know being a doctor and things like that yeah i think uh yeah maybe in engineering field you can uh, go into uh these kinds of training it's not that we don't have that kind of training we have virtual reality simulation training and everything but uh, nothing equals hands-on yeah. training you know so uh, i still remember right. you know, spending hours together in the anatomy uh dissection hall in bandra medical college cutting through the cadaver tracing each nerve in the body each vein in the body each artery in the body seeing what is the relation where it goes where it ends how does it supply this organ how does you know, it's an amazing thing. You know, one, it gives so much of enjoyment. Second, it gives authority. And, uh, you know, I, I, I saw in UK, you know, many of the medical colleges didn't have a cadaveric lab. So they were using like prosections or they using like videos or, you know, like a PowerPoint slides to look at the arm and, you know, the different arteries. But, you know, that's a 2D. You know, it's not a 3D. A human body is a 3D. Right. So unless you are really in high-tech thing. I met a professor from France recently who has gone into 3D virtual reality. And what he's doing is, you know, he's using all his advanced technology and he looks at the arm and he looks at the brachial plexus and, you know, all the nerves coming there and it's like 3D. And he is integrated with artificial intelligence. So the AI tells which nerve is what, which nerve is going where. So unless oh, okay. you have access to something of that caliber, which is uh, still experimental in most of the places in the world, uh, you know, the student can't learn. So because this uh, everything is 3D, it's a touch, feel, move. So you have to see the patient, feel the patient, see what happens. So I think, you know, uh, lab-based studies or simulations can only take you 15, 20%, but the rest have to be uh, hands-on and uh, okay. on the patient rate. Okay. All right. Coming to our, I guess, the, the other topic I want to talk about is pre preventative, like, healthcare uh, in the sense that having personal responsibility um, you know in maintaining your own health and things like that like I was very uneducated about things like muscle growing muscle for example to prevent um, you know injuries well if you're if you're going to be if you're going to be playing sports for example go and 
grow the muscles in your legs so that you'll 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 injure yourself less and things like that um or or even even to prevent heart disease you know what kind of foods you have to eat what kind of workouts or what kind of a lifestyle choice you're going to make how much uh, how much of it do you think in india do we have that sort of literacy about health and all that we talked about health literacy in, in our last podcast but um as far as preventative care you know how much how much can we do so we can avoid things like diabetes you know we, which is a common problem in india heart heart disease is a common problem in india um i, I know the numbers are low I, I i guess my intuition is that it's low i've seen stuff online um but i guess more importantly how do we steer the ship in that direction how do we get into a more of a the whole country get into a healthy lifestyle and things like that what if, if you have any intuitions on that yeah i think preventive care is sort of a hit and miss really so uh, at one uh, level you can say there's a lot of uh, uh, thing on the media and television and things about uh, different programs and things uh, but right. in general i think uh, you know i think in the last uh, podcast also we discussed uh, there's a general lot, a lot of health illiteracy in the country and uh, because of the health illiteracy the quackery is still a very very big thing in india and uh, you know uh yeah, if you go into that you know you you nicely mentioned about exercise to prevent injury there's a whole lot of uh, studies being done on uh, landing biomechanics on the female athlete you know mm. uh, how a female athlete has to land when she jumps you know to prevent acl injury okay this is a well established thing but again it's not uh, known very well in the country and uh, even you know the only the top orthopedic surgeons who are into arthroscopy uh, maybe you know teaching these to their female athletes or uh, Uh, female elite uh, sports people saying uh, how you to train which muscle you have to develop how you have to land so that uh, you know the acl injury doesn't occur you know they still in a, maybe 1% of the people know uh, mm. but majority may not know so that is uh, one aspect of it and uh, you know uh, coming to my own field you know because uh, osteoporosis is a very big uh, problem really uh, in india and uh, you know uh, 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 you know in the west uh, i think the Uh, government has a very very uh, vested interest in osteoporosis they go very aggressive they do a lot of camps and things like that and find out those who are at risk and start treating them with uh, you know guidelines and medication to prevent osteoporosis prevent the hip fracture so that the patient doesn't spend too much time in the hospital and exhaust the resources of the health resources of the country so but here you know it doesn't happen you know uh, a lot of people uh, suffer from these uh, diseases and i remember since i moved from uk i should have done without exaggeration more than 230 or 240 uh, you know uh, osteoporosis scans and arthritis awareness scans to tell the patients that you know a bone can be weak how you can prevent uh, the bone from becoming weak simple things like walking you know 40 minutes a day three or four times a week can prevent osteoporosis you know exposing oneself to sunlight in the mid afternoon you know these kinds of things simple nothing expensive you know simple uh, educational message and this app i've been doing uh, for the last 10 years now and you know i continue to do, do that and uh, mm. there are organizations like geriatric society of india we are our formed uh, associations and we do conferences and we take this message you know we have a, a bone osteoporosis day in august we we spread these kinds of messages really so to help uh, preventive care 
but you mentioned something that uh, maybe the number of diabetes or uh, uh, cardiac uh, disease may not be more but i was in a meeting i think uh, uh, quite a long time ago i think maybe around seven eight years ago uh, an association called the global association of physician of indian origin so this gapio the gapio is in fact uh, created by uh, uh, the only people who are outside trained outside the country can be members of gapio Mm. And it, in fact, it was created by Dr. Prataprati, who's the chairman of uh, Apollo Hospitals when he was in U.S. And uh, all the top guys uh, in, in the world uh, who are Indian origin are part of the GAPIO. And uh, in this meeting, they told me around six, seven years ago that uh, India is sitting on a, a time bomb. Mm. And uh, time bomb is that we will be the diabetic capital of the world. We'll be the cancer capital of the world. We'll wow. be MI capital of the world. We'll be accident capital, capital of the world. Okay, and uh, some maybe lung cancer also because smoking. So I was completely flabbergasted. When, How when did they say? When did they say, they say this law? They told me around six, seven years ago, maybe eight years ago. Okay, this was predicted. This so they had a lot of data. You know, the, the all doctors from US, yeah, uh, Europe, and you know Australia, and some from India also were settled here like me. You know, they were presenting their data and things, and they said this is going to be the future. You know, and uh, it is coming true. I mean, so there is an is epidemic it? of diabetes now epidemic you know it's not mm. pandemic because it's not worldwide but india is going to be hit severely by diabetic i think probably one in three indians will be diabetic by another four or five years or maybe in a, in, a, in a decade one in three indians will be diabetic you know it's a, it's a big thing and uh, heart attack is on the rise you might have heard all the young people dying as well dr Kumar is one person who in a gym died and the number of young yeah. people who are dying of sudden cardiac death uh, covid as well so, uh, and, you know, I had a friend who came back from UK and I met him, I think, uh, just before COVID, I think I met him and uh, he was giving a presentation and I asked him, what's the, what's the difference between UK and Bangalore or India? And he said, in UK, typical heart attack between 45, 50 years, India, 25 years. I said, you're joking, you know, why will a 25 year old guy get a heart attack? He says, this is the people I'm putting strength day in and out. I said, why? You know, 25 wow. is not the age to get heart attack. He said, see, the problem you know they are smoking like crazy stressful lifestyles drinking crazy coming and hiding in front of the parents you know put the cigarette packet outside the house then enter <laughs> the house maybe eat a chewing gum and enter that's going to only fool their parents right and fool themselves and these are the guys having high and getting stents for a single vessel two vessel three vessel at the age of 22 23 24 like that and you know uh, i think this epidemic might continue as well so i think you know going forward uh, i don't think health wise it's not a great thing to be an indian but maybe yeah. as a doctor it's a great thing to be an indian <laughs> because you know all these patients are going to come to you and pay you for your services so hopefully so but you know yeah preventive medicine is very important and you know uh, simple stuff for example osteoporosis just walking 40 minutes four times a week you know can uh, can be a you know a cure uh, for that uh, or you know having regular supplements you know that can be a cure or exposing oneself to sunlight where you don't have to pay any money that can be a you know a curative thing for osteoporosis so many simple things can be done you know you don't have to invest billions of dollars or trillions of pounds to deal with this you know simple things common sense can really uh, solve it you know uh, plus government help and uh, focusing on these scams identifying these patients and you know going after prevention is better than cure you know, if we don't invest in prevention, then we'll spend up billions of dollars curing these patients. Really. Yeah, you were saying sunlight helps with osteoporosis. Like, how do I never knew that fact? Like, how does what is the connection there? Yeah, so basically, human skin and you know, subcutaneous tissue has got fat, and it has got a type of cholesterol. Uh, that cholesterol is a precursor of vitamin D. 
So when the ultraviolet rays of the sun come and hit the human skin, uh, so it gets converted into active form of vitamin D. So at that active form of vitamin D, vitamin D is like a switch in the intestine. If the vitamin D is there, switch is on. Calcium that you take through diet gets absorbed. So if the switch is off, that is no vitamin D is there, then whatever calcium you give, either tablets or dietary calcium through milk or whatever, it doesn't get absorbed by the small intestine. So once it doesn't get absorbed, it can't go into the bone. Bone becomes weak. Uh, bone gets fragility, fractures, osteomalacia, osteoporosis, fracture. And we, we, we wow. call the uh, osteoporotic hip fracture as a you know, silent killer because, you know, a one in three patients, you know, having a neck of femur fracture, a hip fracture, uh, despite surgery, don't survive beyond one year. So if somebody has got a hip fracture, they can sign their will, you know, because they know that one in three will be dead in one year's time. You know, I... So it, that serious is the illness, and you know yeah. that's called as a silent killer because uh, we know how strong our, uh, our muscles are, but we never know how strong our bone is. Right. And we can't feel how strong our bone is. We can see, oh, I got a muscle which is the biceps great. I can lift hundred kg. Yes, I can know that, but I don't know how much weight my bone can lift because I don't feel my bone really. Yeah. Um, and so this is a problem universally, like the lack of sunshine, lack of exposure to sunshine. It doesn't matter if you're an American or an Indian. You just this is an issue you have to address. You have to get healthy amounts of sunlight, uh, you know, per day, whatever that number is. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. This is a global problem, and uh, I think first we discovered, I think around 10, 15 years ago, when I was doing my fellowship, and uh, we were looking at all the revision patients who come for redo surgery, and we found that all of them had a vitamin D deficiency. We thought, wow, what's happening? Why are they having vitamin D deficiency? And then research happened. People really looked into it in the, into the West. And they found that uh, I think probably more than 50% of the world is deficient in vitamin D. So, and wow. uh, the chronic patients who come for revision, it's 80%. And it's estimated that around 80% of Indians are deficient in vitamin D. And now vitamin D has been linked to literally everything. It's been linked to, yeah, orthopedic surgeon, osteoporosis. Yes, I can understand how it's mm -hmm. related. But it's linked to a causation of diabetes, causation of cancer, causation wow. of stroke. And you know, you correct vitamin D levels, there are 25 diseases you can stop. So wow. that is the vitamin D really. So I think that's coming as a very, very strong message now in the last five years. It's so shocking, Dr. Srikant, that you know this this is not common knowledge. Like exposure to more sunlight is beneficial across the board. Um, I'll tell you what's ironic. My work, my wife works at a hospital. And she has had to explicitly go out of her way to ask for a, an office for her, so that's facing that's facing a window that she has because she's locked up in an office for eight whatever eight ten hours a day without a window. And I'm thinking, wait, the hospital should be the first place to promote all of these good ideas. And the same at my workplace too. I mean, I work, you know, at this this big corporation where you're just sitting in cubicles and there's not a window for literally hundreds of yards, right? And and so, I mean, the idea there is that you won't get distracted and things like that. But then you you hear research coming in from all the sites all the time that sunlight is a huge, you know, universal cure for a lot of things like you're saying. Um, so is it the same in India too, that a lot of people are just not, not exposed to sunlight because they're stuck in offices or the, the construction of their home is in in such a way that they just don't have sunlight you know there's a whole lot of reasons uh, but i think it's also one of it is just ignorance of the problem that su sunlight is such an important thing 
yeah i think you know that's what i see in my practice of initially i was shocked i'm i'm uh, no longer shocked uh, i see that vitamin vitamin d deficiency is very common in the it crowd in bangalore mm. okay so uh, you know but you go to a village and you just see the guy a villager you know he has got normal vitamin d somebody okay. working in the field has got normal vitamin d but right. typical it crowd in bangalore get into the ac car drive to the office sit in the ac room all day cut off from the sun again drive back in the evening or night and you check their vitamin d levels it will be 10 nanograms something like that it will be really bottom it should be 30 mm. and above but it will be uh, uh, you know way down in the bottom and i was thinking gosh these are rich people educated you know uh, why is that you know they are prone to more disease compared to somebody who is in a village who is running around in the streets and that kind of a thing but you know that's the thing actually and uh, other reason is uh, the pollution in the cities the pollution all the pollutants go they create a blanket between the sun and the uh, the people and you know mm. these rays good rays can't come in but in a village it's not polluted the guy is traveling in an afternoon maybe bare chested in the field or something like that he's yeah. getting enough amount of sunlight he's doing enough amount of activities also he's getting normal vitamin d and his bones are really healthy but the bones of the young people in bangalore or a city like mumbai delhi others is weak because uh, they're vitamin d deficient and they're deficient in quite a big way how do you ensure that you get enough sunlight per day i uh, you know i i go for a walk you know that's uh, at least one hour a walk okay, okay. one uh, one time i i sort of get it and if there's option to eat in uh, in the hospital then eat out outside i choose outside if it's not raining so that way i get the thing but uh, you know one has to be vigilant otherwise you know easily you can uh, fall into the trap uh, sometimes you're so busy and we're not focusing on it you know yeah. and uh, uh, you know periodically you have to check your your own uh, vitamin d levels and see what's happening and if it's deficient you have to be on supplements and i think uh, in a way covid did a good thing for many doctors because uh, uh, people were not sure what was the treatment everybody was dosing on different vitamin d's and this and uh, uh, you know multivitamins and things like that so i think a uh, lot of people become healthy because thanks to covid really you know because they're just yeah and some different uh, supplements yeah um one, one point you made earlier that you know the more people are sick uh, it's a huge drain on the system on the you know financial fiscal system of, of a country i i don't think this is wide knowledge right like this is this uh, i don't think this that people make that connection that a, a sick population means it's going to drain the exchequer finally somebody is going to pay for it um i guess um this is such a convoluted problem too because there's lack of literacy about all of these things um and, and then the point earlier you made the very first topic we were discussing is that people are more obsessed about everything else other than these core issues that are affecting India, right? Like we're, we're obsessed about religion or caste and this. Like from your personal viewpoint, uh, Dr. Srikant, like you're like, you know, if you, if you, if you were in the driver's seat, like, like how do we, I mean, what are the things we could do? Like awareness is one thing. We're both are talking about it. And, and you know, I, when I was in India, that's, this has been my personal experience too. I, a lot of times, you know, dwelling on, issues that really aren't that important in the in the hierarchy of things like i'll give you a quick example to the point the, the the obsession with some of these things is so uh prevalent ubiquitous in in in, in maybe the indian population is that i was telling somebody I, I visited bhopal hey it was a nice city and things like that and then 
the first thing the person says, Bhopal has got a majority of the minority, you know, something like that. And I'm thinking, that is not the point of, you know, that, that is not what I want to discuss about. Um, we we it it seems like there's all of these problems that are so like so urgently requiring our attention, but we're focused on these narrow group of things that you know, frankly, draining, draining us, draining the country, and a small group of people, a small group of people are being benefited. But then when you look, scale back and look at the big picture, it's like all of these metrics you're talking about are ticking time bomb. India is a ticking time bomb in, in terms of like healthcare and things like that. Like, whoa, we should be just waking up and, and trying to address all of these things. So from your personal viewpoint, like how do we stop the obsession? How do we get out of this mindset that, you know, minorities or castes or whatever religion and then talk about real growth? Like, you know, I, and I don't know, I, I don't have a good answer. Um, I have s several like ideas. One of the things is to start the podcast and talk about these things. Um, you know, the, the, I'm, do, I'm trying to do my part in the, in the thing too and amplify whoever I can. I don't know. I'm sure you've thought about this. Uh, the long-winded question for you, Dr. Shrikant. Sorry. Can, can you, you please take the floor? Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, so I'll give a very short answer for this long-winded question. <laughs> I, mean, so, uh, I think basically I would say education. You know, we need to educate the people. Uh, when you say education, sorry to interrupt you. When you say education, you mean not just not just K through 12, not just like we need to revamp that, like, you know, education in terms of the quality of education we're giving to our children, for example. That has to be revamped. But you're talking even broader, like, you know, even the adults today need, we need like a mass awareness campaign of sorts, right? It's all into understanding what is real, what is fake, what is created, what is benefiting, as you said, a minority group of people who want to keep it that way to control the majority and what should really majority do, you know, what are the, what are the real issues, you know? So it's not religion, it's not the real issue of the country is right. facing. Development is a real issue. Bad roads are the real issue. Polluted water is a real issue. Polluted air is a real issue. Food adulteration is a real issue in India. These are the real issues. And if you don't focus on that, if you're always thinking about man, some mandir masjid or caste or something like that, or some ethnic uh, or, uh, violence happening in Manipur now and that kind of a thing, then you are diverted. You are not really focused on the real things. Then, you know, your attention is diluted and you can't really achieve the goals that you want to achieve. So, you know, in that sense, you know, education is... Uh, uh, very vital, not just education of the, uh, you know, the, the students and other things, but also education of the public in general about what is the real issues, uh, you know, that, that's yeah. What, what is it? I mean, like, I, I think to myself, like, what is it? Like, is it like and the second you know, answer? I want to yeah. you, the accountability. I think what India lacks is accountability. Accountability is zero across all the fields. Okay. So I think, you know, what differentiates a developed world from a, a developing or so-called third world is accountability you know you take the accountability out of a developed world it will become a third world as simple as that so in i i see in every aspect of uh, you know the indian life you know this accountability is zero you know oh chalta hai that kind of a thing and you know nobody is accountable and responsible say hey put my hand up and say it's my responsibility i will ensure this is done if it's not done i'll take the can nobody will say they'll just uh, you know, hide behind opaque systems and uh, okay, chalta hai. So hide behind opaque system, chalta hai. So this is the, once you bring accountability into the country, then I think the India will change rapidly. You know, it'll be a developed country overnight, really. Yeah, to, to your first point, like I'm thinking, you talk about education in general, like I'm thinking, what are the solutions? Because I worked as a, 
as a data analyst and data scientist for a little while in my in my job and one of the things you did was pull data you know and then made these charts or bar charts or visual um, artifacts that helped uh, drive the message home to people like we're making technical decisions and so forth is it is it that is it is it more you know data that has to be shown like hey this is a ticking time bomb we should address it right now or is it a cultural like it, my intuition is that it's it's almost like a cultural up, upgrade right right like when we are talking about religion and all of these other things um versus all the burning issues that sounds more cultural to me like the fact that we've forgotten that what is the fundamental thing health is a fundamental thing that we need for our country why is that not like the most burning issue and to me it sounds like well, we've always had this kind of, I don't know, not always, but um, there has been this kind of communal tension and all of that stuff in India, even in the 90s and Babri Masjid and all of that stuff. We had obsession with religion. Um, now it's more because of social media. Um, that That's why I feel it's more cultural. Like, even if I show a bunch of plots to people and say, look, the, the, the path we're on right now is going to lead us to hell. Uh, we should fundamentally change our thought processes and say, um, this is how we, sh we should think about these issues and we'll have better outcomes for the country. And, and it seems like, you know, like, I, like you have been trained in the UK. You, you've lived in the, U in the UK um, and you've trained there, you've practiced there and everything. You have this mindset. And I feel like, okay, I'm similar with me. I, you know, I went to school here, work here and everything. Um, when you're when, uh, you know i i love my country def which is my home country as much as i love america but when i look at my home country and i look at all these problems i'm like man these things need to be solved yesterday you know and when i talk to people about this like why aren't people making more noise about it why isn't there like you know i've had personal uh, you know i've felt things personally because of some of the dysfunctions in our country um, it's more seems like somebody who's at an outside perspective comes to India and says, oh, this is what's going on. We should address it. Whereas folks in India, I feel like, you know, my friends, I'll take for example, we're so used to bad news so regularly, we become desensitized to it, so, you know, so much. Yeah, that's that's true. I mean, so if you keep on uh, hitting uh, with bad news, you, you, uh, you know, you get desensitized and it becomes that becomes a number and they'll say oh right uh, 100 died uh, this year ah that's better because 300 died last year so yeah yeah died this year is bad enough you know but you know i'll, I'll send you a number died last year so this better we are improving so yeah i yeah, know sorry, sorry to interrupt you but I, i'll tell you something like that very uh really happened to me i was reading this number uh that in india there are 15 roughly 15000 fatalities road accidents per year in india okay per month per month that that equates to about 300 per day right 300 people if i'm doing the math right is that right 300 times um, what am i doing no no that's not 300 that's 500 close to 500 500 uh, times 330 uh, is 15000 close to 500 people are dying per day in traffic deaths in india okay when i said this number to somebody and they're like, oh, you're saying 500. I thought there'll be more than that. You know, and, and many people gave me this response. Many people, not just, I, I asked this question just as a kind of a social test, you know, it's like how much people are, you know, what is the appetite or, or rather, how, when are people going to lunge out of the seat and say, oh my God, we got to do something about it. 500 was not cutting it. 500 per day. 
I mean, that's uh, the sad truth, really. But uh, uh, that's how, you know, preventable. The, the reason why I'm dwelling on it, too, is that it's preventable. The, these deaths, like, you know, pedestrian safety and things like that, uh, there's a lot of low-hanging fruit on our, you know, in, in the Indian traffic system that we could implement. Yes. If the person gets disabled, then he's a burden to the society. Right. Think, you know, how much the government has to spend or society has to spend or parents have to spend. Or Such a loss it is to society, and, yeah, too. Yeah. Disabled and they, they have to look after him whatever next 15 20 years and uh, that's a lot of money drained you know uh, right. like you mentioned prevent you that's what i tell patients see look here you know now i'm telling you take this medication to prevent osteoporosis you're thinking oh doc should i have to spend five thousand rupees a month to prevent this but once if you allow the hip fracture to occur then to fix the hip fracture you will spend two three lakhs mm -hmm. so in fact you are saving this two three lakhs by investing five thousand rupees you think about it then it will go to their sense Otherwise, they say why spend five thousand now so that means when it happens, we'll see it. Then it's too late, my friend. It's too late. You know, you're spending the five lakhs. That be that's being pennywise and pound foolish, really. Yeah. 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 Well, uh, Dr. Srikant, I really appreciate your time on the idea sandbox. I I will do my best to amplify your your message and I will splice in some videos just to kind of give context of our conversation so that there's a bigger kind of like, a, a, you know, like a, I don't know, like a bigger context of what we're talking about. We're just not uh, discussing this as a one-on-one. -on -one. This is this is something that needs to be addressed. And so I'll, I'll, I'll try my I best would, to put some... This is a real patriotism because, you know, uh, sometimes I, I make a provocative statement. I tell that people outside India are more patriotic than Indians. You know, it, mm. it's the Indians. But, you know, sometimes it's true because, uh, you know, people outside, you know, they really love the country. They want the... To see the country develop, and that's why they're giving advice. Yeah. They're not like saying in condescending way, "Oh, you look right. here, you are like this, and we are like that." It's not like that, you know. It's that you know things can be improved because uh, you know people have seen, uh, you know, from outside the box what it looks like, you know, how we can change the system, and they're giving constructive criticism. And then when it comes, you know, if you take it, then you can change the country rather than saying, "No, no, no. What do you understand? You come to India, then you will understand." Sorry, you know. Yeah. Uh, uh, you know, there are patriots in India, definitely, but there are uh, equally uh, more important patriots in, uh, say, in Europe or America and Australia and uh, all the entire Indian diaspora. And that's why Modi is going and uh, reaching out to the, these diaspora. And we have to take benefit of them and their insight also into the problems and solve the problems rather than saying, no, no, we know how to do, do deal with our things really. Let's not be in denial. Let's be open to right. thoughts from all the directions. You know, at the end of the day, it is to improve the country. It's to make India a developed country now, not in 2047. And that's the whole idea behind all this podcast reading. Yeah, yeah. I uh, to to echo what you just said. I mean, it's I don't even look at it. I look at it even like one level above. This is this is a vast body of people, 1.4 billion of our fellow human beings. I, do, I don't even if I was not Indian, I would be looking at my fellow you know my fellow humans as like there's these issues and it's. It's been solved. It's been solved in other parts of the world. We've, we've, we've had, it's almost formulaic at this point, how these issues can be solved. We don't have to reinvent the wheel. There's a lot of things we could we could, we could pull from there, from the ideas that, that they've come up with, and then just implement it on ours. It's not even that hard of a problem. This is like avoidable things, and we should be doing that. You know, I don't know if you've heard of this, like I made this point earlier too, is that the Meiji restoration, have you heard of that by any chance? Uh, Japan, yeah, Japan Emperor Meiji uh, in the in the 19th century 
um, he was a very visionary guy. So when he found that the West, you know, had gone far ahead in industrialization and all of that, they sent one of the, the their top brightest people from Japan um, to go to travel to Europe and America and other parts of the developed world, go copy all those systems and bring it back to J J Japan, customize it for the local, you know, um, context, and then make Japan a developed country. And look where they're at today, right? Like, the, the, I, I feel like sometimes we we have this kind of like, you know, pride that we are the best and all that. Like, well, you can also, you know, pull these ideas from other places. And there's examples of that. Japan and South Korea are shiny examples of how they, you know, leveraged a lot of ideas from the West. So I think there's there's definitely that. Anyway, I'm making your point. <laughs> I mean, that's a, that's a great thing. You know, let good things come from all directions. Right. Even our say the same thing. Let good things come from all our direction. So why don't we apply it? You know, we quote a lot of Vedas and all our past and everything. But uh, we have to live in the present. We can't live in the past glory. Yeah. You know? Yes, India was a great country. I completely agree. You know, it was fantastic selection. I completely agree. But let's bring all those good things to now so that right. our people can benefit now rather than we live in the past saying, oh, my ancestors were great. Like our guru was to say, you know, yes, your grandfather was Maharaja Chakravarti. What are you, a beggar? What's the point? You have to be Maharaja Chakravarti now. You know, that's more important right. than your grandfather being, a, you know, the emperor of emperors. So, you know, let's be in the now and let's make this uh, a beautiful place, a better place to live for everybody. Yep. Thank you, Dr. Shrikant. Have a good night. I know it was late. I really appreciate your time. Same to you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you.